we're, uh, we've got three to go, today included, on uh, our series uh, Nailed It, looking at the resurrection. I want to draw out today the implications of the resurrection for the way that we live. Uh, next time, which will be in a fortnight's time, implications of the resurrection for our assurance of life beyond this one. And then finally, in three weeks' time, implications of the resurrection on the future of this world that so often feels like to us it's careering somewhat chaotically out of control from time to time. What assurance can we find in the face of that? If you've only just joined us, you can get all of it at forward slash nailed it. And uh, if uh, it floats your boat to uh, uh, use podcasts and so on, you can get everything uh, uh, at the iTunes uh, store, Burlington Audio Podcasts. And there are sermons there for the last nine, ten years maybe. So I'll keep you busy. And if you think this was a rubbish one, then with a bit of luck you can go home and find a good one. (laughs) Ah. And if you can't find a good one over the last ten years, then I'm going to ask you what you're doing here. And what am I doing here as well? Okay, last week, just to put it into context, it's called Nailed It, by the way, because when Jesus rose from the dead, he nailed it. He nailed the issue about his identity. He nailed the issue as to why he came. He nailed the issue as to what he'd come to do. Jesus nailed it. That's the hashtag if you're twittering away uh, this morning. Linking it in with last week, we saw that the risen Jesus sends us. We are a sent people. We're not to sit about all day, every day, waiting that the one who's gone might one day come back, although he will. But in the meantime, uh, we've been sent. Not just a, a, a new life in an abstract sense, but a new life in a real way to live out. We began to talk about last time how being sent is about the way that we live, probably a lot more than the things that we say. You can say stuff But if your body language and your lifestyle and the way that you are don't match up to what you say, you might as well forget about what you're saying uh, anyway. So to be sent requires us not just to be thinking about a different location. Sometimes when we hear preachers talk about, you've got to go, you think, well, where have I got to go to? The chances are you haven't got to go anywhere, but you've got to live where you are as if you have been sent there because you have. That makes sense? So it's not about location, but it is about lifestyle. It's not about where you are on the map, but it is about your mindset that where you are is where you've been placed by the risen Jesus. And I'm going to ask Liam to come and share what it meant for him on one occasion to embody that mindset of, hey, I've been sent here. I'm a sent person. I'm an ambassador in this place and what it meant for him. Liam, would you come? Hello, everyone. For those who don't know me, my name's Liam. Simon's helped me out with that. No problem with this, isn't he? Um, I just want to talk about something today that I'm really passionate about, and that's about being different in the world, as it currently is. I got this bit of scripture from John 17 that Jesus said, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. I'm just thinking about when Jesus walked on this earth, everywhere he went, he walked in such a way that there were always crowds talking about him and following him everywhere he went. As it said in Matthew 9, verse 8, when the crowds saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. It leads me on to talk about 
the authority he left with the uh, disciples. And at the end of Matthew 28, he talks about, the bit that really strikes me, is he talks about, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that what drives me on to the places I am in my work, in my walk of life. Just that little sentence there really appeals to me. So I've become a Christian about three years ago and I've been doing the same job since about 2006. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't like my job before I became a Christian. I can't understand why I was in the job. But when I received Christ, I realised that I was seeing so many people on a daily basis both at work and on my round. So I just want to share with you a personal testimony from where I currently work. I was at work one day at Parcel Force and there was probably about 10 or 12 men just in a group um, talking about situations which are usual to the world. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Lads Bible, anyone? So even the world have got a Bible. So that means I've got to stand up my Bible rather than their Bible. So anyway, I knew the time was going to come where somebody was going to say, Liam, come and join us. Come and see what we're talking about. So anyway, I just said into my head, Lord, would you give me the words to say that would be out of love and not to judge them? So as the Lord is faithful, he'd give me words to say. It's just a matter of time of waiting for the guys to ask him to come over. So anyway, the guy comes, he goes, Liam, look at this. They're talking about... Um, a group of women who they, who's appealing to them. So I just said to them, lads, I don't need that. I said, I've got all I need at home. In a, in a loving way, and I'm being honest, I'm not. I was really loving to them. So, but the response I got back from one of the guys, he said, you're not right. And I smiled and I said, brilliant, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of why I'm here, to, to be not right. But this leads on to other testimonies where sometimes these guys are talking about me when I don't even need to. And there's a situation where a guy um, was knew I was going to cover his round and he said, you've got to watch out for this guy who's in my round next time. He's different. He's not like us. So I got to have a conversation with this guy and he was a Sikh, which is even better. And he just asked me why I was different and I just said, I'm different because I believe in Jesus Christ. He's transformed my life. And again, he just, he go, I don't know how you do it, but you're not right. So I could keep getting men saying you're not right. And I'm laughing. I'm not ashamed. I think it's brilliant. And I thank Christ that he's made himself in home so me so well that I cannot be embarrassed because in the past I probably would have decked him, to be honest. So I thank you. <laughs> so I thank Jesus for that. Um, sorry, you put me off my stride now. Um, I mean, this is not for a certain person. You know, we've got a congregation of Christians here. We're all visible of Christ. You know, we've got Christ in us so the world can see. So I just want to encourage people. I'll share this today because wherever we are, whether it's in the playground, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, that the gifts that God's give us, we can use in those situations. So I just thank Christ for what he's done in my life. And there's one bit of scripture from 1 John 3 that really appeals to me, is that Christ come to destroy the works of the enemy. But the way he says it is he wants us to do that in a different way so the world does it. Well, the world does it in violence. We want to do it out of love. So I just thank 
Jesus for changing my life. And I'm just going to finish up here with saying that heaven, in my eyes, that heaven is our destination. And our mission here right now is to destroy the works of the enemy with love. And before I end, I just want to pray for the congregation, if you just bow your heads for a sec. Lord, I just want to thank you for um, your church here, Lord. I thank you for the situations you've placed us in, whether in our jobs, in our roles, in any way. And I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit will really ignite us as we go through our walks this week and beyond the week. Lord, I just thank you, Lord, that you've made your home inside us so that the world can see and experience the risen Jesus. Thank you. So we're thinking about being sent. We're thinking about living uh, different. And we pick up those verses that Graham read to us. It'd be really helpful, I think, to have a Bible open in front of you. Uh, if that uh, uh, floats your boat, uh, get your phones out and use your Bible on your phones. That's all fine. Or uh, do anything else that's worthwhile. Um, at the time. Verse 1 then of Colossians chapter 3. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. With the risen Christ we have a new life. You can't live different unless something different is alive in you. You've been raised with Christ, Paul says, and it's this resurrection life, this life that lifted Christ uh, to the heavens, is the life that you and I now share. His resurrection life is yours for now. The same in verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Hidden, perfect tense, so your, your life was hidden some time ago and the results of that, the effects of that, continue now on into the present and into the future. So in the fullest sense, you are alive with resurrection life. And look at what Paul is saying. He's saying it's time in these opening verses for you to focus on, to look at, to dwell on what is already true. What he says here is stop looking at your life from an earthly perspective, which is incredibly natural and easy to do. Our lives that seem so rooted in the earth are therefore confined or constrained by our circumstances. And all of us know what it is sometimes, perhaps most of the time, to feel that our lives are hemmed in by our circumstances, whether they be relational, economic, health, whatever the circumstances that hem us in, we feel constrained by them or trapped by our temporal existence. And Paul is saying, look, get the right perspective for your life. Make sure that your heart is in the right place, that you are looking in the right direction. See it there in verse 1. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts, set your focus on things above. And again in verse 2, set your minds not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. Typical Hebrew parallelism, saying the same thing twice. Set your hearts on things above, set your mind on things above. Repeating, kind of like a a, a Hebrew rhetoric uh, to uh, uh, emphasize what's being said. But like the preacher that says, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I've told you. 
Same thing in Hebrew, uh, a repeat, like, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, praise his holy name. Well, why is he repeating himself? Because we didn't hear the first time? No, it's about a, it's about a, a way of emphasizing. Paul's saying, look, we've got this resurrection life, and what I want to emphasize, what I want to make sure, is that you've got your focus in the right place. He's challenging their perspective. And to live different begins with thinking different. To live this resurrection life, we have to set out with a resurrection perspective. Perspective is all important. When the girls were younger, we've got two girls, two boys, when they were younger, there'd be a scream from the bedroom and uh, someone would come rushing in, a superhero dad, there's a monster in my room. Teeny, teeny, weeny spider. Teeny, 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 weeny spider. Big enough, that teeny, weeny spider, to paralyze a girl into complete inactivity and absolute hysteria. From their perspective, the teeny, weeny monster was overwhelming. Of course, in reality, that wasn't true. But you cannot tell someone whose perspective is shot, get a life. Well, you can, but it doesn't work. We're drinking from a hospital straw. Because often our fears are irrational because our perspective is shot. What's the monster in the room of your life that feels overwhelming? It isn't. But it feels overwhelming. The financial struggle, the relational strife, the health hardships, the turmoil of a particular situation, shame, guilt, frustration, disappointment, regret. What is the monster, that which feels like it's overwhelming, that thing which causes you to lose perspective and you feel trapped, constrained, defeated, overwhelmed, by it. What Paul is saying, it's not that those things aren't real. It's not that the spiders in our lives don't exist. It's not that they don't create great fear and hardship within us. But Paul is saying, you have to get the right perspective in order that everything else might fit into its rightful place. You need the perspective of the fact that you are a a human being exponentially bigger than the teeny weeny little spider. And all you have to do is place a little cup over the spider and the spider can't go anywhere. It doesn't feel like that. What's your perspective? And we've had great songs down the years, haven't we, about that kind of getting perspective. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So uh, uh, what's that? Is, is our, are we saying that somehow the, the monster is any smaller? No, that's a, that's a falsehood that lacks reality and integrity. Are we saying the monster doesn't matter? No, that's not a real scenario. What we're saying is when our, our perspective is right, when we realize that the life within us is the resurrected life of Jesus, these other things put on their rightful place. No magic wand, those circumstances are often still the same. Those disappointments are just as real. The, the sense of shame and guilt, at least at the beginning of the journey, is just as real as it ever was. But yet, 
in the light of the glory of Christ, these things take on their proper uh, perspective. Oppressed and struggling Christians have a really strong eschatological theology, a really strong end times theology, a really strong sense that one day Jesus will come back and he will put everything right. And they see the light of their struggle as being a momentary temporal thing which in the light of eternity will uh, uh, take its rightful place in the order of a righteous and just God. And so those people struggling have a great sense that one day God will come and fix it and sort it all out. Sweet low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me. Marvellous. I'm such fun, aren't we? Um, (laughs) The ultimate perspective, that is, that whatever my monster... Whatever constrains me, whatever overwhelms me, whatever consumes me, will one day be utterly defeated by a risen Jesus. The ultimate perspective that this world will not take me down. Take me down being a kind of metaphor for surviving. A couple of days ago, Joel and I discovered we were the only people in the house. It's often got more girls than boys in it. I'm going to take you down, he said. We moved into the room with the most space. And we fought like animals. You'll have to ask him who won. Because there's something about saying, hey, I can take you down. Which makes me feel like I'm in control, doesn't it? I don't worry, I'll take you down. Mr. Medins in Cardiff High School. You think you're ad, Sonny, don't you? Well, I'm the ad one round here now. What was he saying? I can take you down. And sometimes we think that things in this world can take us down. They cannot take us down because Jesus is risen and he's reigning. And our lives are hidden in him, that ultimate perspective. And that's where Paul ends up in these verses in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This world won't take you down. Thank you. The ultimate reality, his resurrection life in me makes me alive and no one can snuff that life out. Or to use some other verses, nothing or anything can separate us from the love of God. So with the risen Christ, we have a new life. What happens next in these verses, I think, is really interesting. Because in our particular Christian stream, when you ask someone, are you a Christian? What you're most likely to expect back in response is a set of things that they believe. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Do you believe the other? Tick, you're a Christian. Now, there's certain truth in that. There are certain fundamental things we would say it's necessary to believe in order to call yourself a Christian. But the majority of the time, when the Bible answers the question, are you a Christian, are you a Jesus follower, it answers it not by thinking about what you believe, but by looking at how you behave. Not about what you believe, but by looking at how you behave. 
So often in Paul's letters, the first few chapters are about orthodoxy, what you believe, moving into orthopraxy, how you behave. So your justification, your guarantee, your assertion that you're believing right is meted out in the way that you go on to live. And that's what happens here again. Instead of an affirmation about things that we as Christians believe, Paul says that if your life is with the risen Christ, if your life is already bursting with this resurrection life, then you will have not a new talk, a new set of beliefs, but you will have, verse 5, a new lifestyle. A new lifestyle. And that lifestyle will be as transforming as putting certain things to death and seeing certain other things raised to new life within you. Put to death. It's a continuous tense. Keep on killing off that life which is no longer compatible with the resurrection life of Jesus within you. You know, like um, the, the sort of films that you watch, um, it's not that I don't watch films, that sounded a bit like you watch, you pagan people watching films. <laughs> I had a few hours sleep last night because I was watching a film till the early hours of the morning. Does that make me a bad Christian? Some of you are not sure about it. Don't make him bad. Depends what I was watching. Who said that as a a sharp pencil in the pack? Um, uh, uh, Films. Yes, so uh, I forgot what I was saying. So, yeah, films. And at the end of the film, the the baddie gets killed off. Or so you think. You can probably think of numerous films where this happens. You think the baddie is dead and over. And then in the final frames of the, of the movie, the, the baddie that is as good as dead comes back to life for one final fling, yeah? You all think of films like that? This language is just like that. You've got to like keep killing off that which is part of the old life because it will have this awful tendency to keep uh, uh, reinventing or rejuvenating uh, itself. Keep killing off whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You've got a new life to live, which is worked out in a new lifestyle, which means you've got to kill some things off. And then Paul gives us two groups of sins. Verse 5, they're all sexual sins. And verse 8, they're all social sins. Sexual sins in verse 5, social sins in verse 8. Verse 5, put to death therefore whatever Uh, belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Greed might be the odd one out, but in this context, the the language probably suggests sexual greed. I'm in this for myself. I only want what I can get. Um, uh, A sexual uh, immorality, the straying from abstinence outside marriage and faithfulness within, impurity, all about thoughts and fantasies, even obsessions. Lust, well, that means lust. Evil desires has the kind of idea of I had my wicked way with him or her, usually it's a her in the way we use that in, in, in English. So this kind of, um, uh, kind of uh, a ball of sexual sin that could have been written for today's contemporary culture. Well, why does Paul make a big thing about sexual sin? I don't know, you'll have to ask him when you get to heaven why he made a big thing here about sexual sin. Uh, maybe because the ancient world in which the Christians were working out their faith was incredibly sexualized and incredibly uh, uh, public and unrestrained in degrading sexual practice. Maybe that's why Paul focuses on it here. 
So that's Paul's perspective, but I can give you a pastor's perspective as to why sometimes people say, why do people go on about this sexual sin all the time? I don't think we do go on about it all the time, but that's how sometimes it's caricatured. I think one of the reasons that it's talked about, uh, and perhaps should be talked about even more, is that pastorally, it, it, is, it is that kind of uh, scenario that messes us up so often more than so many others. I cannot tell you how many times I've sat with someone, and at the root of all the struggle is something that went wrong sexually. Why? Because somehow we get united with other people. That's the mystery of this gift of sexual union. Intimacy unites us in a mysterious way that we do not understand. And if I'm uniting myself to images on a screen, if I'm uniting myself to fantasies in my head, if I'm uniting myself to other human beings that I then don't unite the rest of my life with, then I'm I'm messing up the order in a very significant way. And it messes people up. Uh, And I see that in, in our ordinary Uh, uh, day-to-day living. Having mentioned sexual sins, he goes on to talk about social sins, the more respectable sins, the ones that we're less worried about. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Hey, these are mega-destructive sins. Mega-destructive. Being around someone who's in fits of anger, it's an awful place to be. Treading on eggshells all the time. Destroys the life that's within you. People that are, are full of rage and can flare up at any time becomes exhausting. If you discover that someone has maligned you or talked about you or slandered you, can you shrug that off very easily? Perhaps you lot can but I don't believe you. Because people will say, as they talk about their lives, they will remember with absolute clarity someone saying something that was unfair 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Incredibly destructive, the way we can sometimes use our tongues. And Paul says, hey, you've got to rid yourselves of all this absolute nonsense because it messes people up and it's not part of the resurrection life to which you have been called. Maybe in our minds there's a false hierarchy that some sins, the the sins of verse 5 perhaps are the serious ones and then the sins of verse 8 are not quite so bad. I'm not sure there's any hierarchy here at all except maybe verse 9, the final uh, sin that Paul mentions, the final thing to get rid of, do not lie to each other. I don't know what your parenting strategy is. We're still kind of working ours out. You know, we used to have a theory on parenting and no kids. Now we've got four kids and about six million theories going on as to what we should do. One thing, one thing that would cause us and would still do if it happened to go nuclear in our house would be a lie. Well, whatever's going on, you tell the truth. And maybe Paul is putting lying as a hierarchy. Why? Because when we lie, we align ourselves with the father of of lies. It was a lie that started this whole mess in the first place. And so there's these, these lists of sin. Paul's saying, look, this is part of your old life. Uh, and a lie can destroy a marriage, and it can destroy a family, and it can destroy a relationship, it can destroy a, a business partnership, it can destroy a working relationship overnight. And maybe if Paul puts anything at the top, he puts this um, thing of lying. 
We're coming into land, but there's something really important that you need to notice here. And it's easy to miss it because of the way our minds think. By now, it sounds like the Christian life is an awful lot of effort. I've got to strive to be a better person. I've got to keep killing this old stuff off. And I've got a problem with that thing that you mentioned, Simon, in verse 5. And I've got a problem with that thing you mentioned in verse 8. And I I don't know how to deal with it. And it's overwhelming sometimes. Uh, And I'm thinking now I've just got to try a little bit harder. No, 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 no. That's not what Paul is saying. The passive mood in verse 1 that sets the whole chapter going is about there's a work of God going on in you. Someone say hallelujah quick. There's a work of God going on in you because he is the one that has raised you into the heavens with Christ. It is he who has given you this new life to live as a gift. Since you have been raised with Christ, something God has done for you. Verse 10, the new self that's being renewed, that's something that God is doing. This is God's doing. And the trouble is, for so often in our Christian lives, we thought if only I tried a bit harder, and we try a bit harder, and maybe we win for a little bit, and like an elastic band, the moment you turn around, let go, ping, it goes right back to square one. Anyone know what that's like? Some of you are brave enough to raise your hands, but everyone knows what that's like. I'm trying harder, I'm trying harder, I'm trying harder. Ooh. You know, that's the first five minutes of a New Year's resolution, isn't it? You know? By the time the alarm goes off, you've bust it. Elastic band. Because you can't do it. That's the whole point of the gospel. We cannot change ourselves, which is why this new life in us is so exciting, because it's something to invite, to encourage, to allow, to grow from within the inside out. That's why Paul says, look, when, when you step out today, make sure you understand first and foremost that it's not about your old life, but it is about this new life of Christ that is already within you. Let him create in you all that he longs to do. And finally, with the risen Christ, we have a new lineage, a new lineage, a new family. He says, if you start living this new life, you are going to create something that the whole world will be envious of, because you're going to create a community where all the barriers are broken down, a new family whose DNA goes right back to the risen Christ himself, a new lineage. Uh, And that family identity, you know, if you look... um, if you research your family trees, and some of you will have done that, and you'll have gone back 100, 200 years, whatever it is, there are family likenesses in, in, in pictures for as long as you can go back for pictures. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone looked at a great-grandparent and thought, hmm, I can see the family resemblance in them? I mean, it might not be a good resemblance, but you can see it all the same. You might wish it wasn't there, but nevertheless, it's there. Paul is saying, look, look, if, if, if you allow this resurrection life to, to burst forth in you so that your, this new life is creating a new lifestyle, you're plugging yourself into a new lineage, a new inheritance, a new DNA, and you will take on the family identity. And in this family, there's no Greek or Jew, there's no racial prejudices. In this family, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no religious barriers, no barbarian scythian, no cultural differences, no slave or free, no political or economic barriers, but Christ is all and in all. An amazing vision of a people coming together in the middle of a world falling apart. And we can't do that. But as the life of Christ, as the risen Jesus brings his life to us. As we set our hearts and minds, not on the confines of this 
earthly, temporal, hemmed-in, circumstantial existence, but on the risen Jesus who is above all and in all, a, a new community is born. And how cool is that? Whatever we've talked about over these last few weeks about changing uh, the structures of society, nothing will change it faster or deeper or quicker than a new community that invites others to join. A new culture with a lineage goes back to the risen Jesus himself. Now that I can get excited about. Where all that divides, corrupts, breaks down, from lust to lying, from racism to intellectualism, all this is got rid of as we gaze and receive and respond to the life of Jesus, the resurrection life. We are to be that life-giving community. So set your hearts on things above. Set your mind on Christ, where your life is already hidden. Because a world falling apart needs a people coming together. Let's be quiet.